0: J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Thanks to the diligent work of CDC and HHS.
1: Now, the CDC is working around the clock to produce and send out more test kits. That's what the CDC is recommending. Do you
0: know how many tests the CDC has administered?
2: These days, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, also known as the CDC, is probably the most recognized institution managing the coronavirus pandemic. They're the ones offering guidelines on symptoms, travel and prevention. You might have already been to their website. Given the level of fear and confusion surrounding this pandemic, I wanted to talk to one of the CDC's top leaders and get answers to some of your biggest questions. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. And this is Coronavirus, Fact versus Fiction.
1: The American public really needs to steady ourselves for a long haul here. This may be more disruptive than other outbreaks we've been
2: through. Dr. Ann Schuchat is the principal deputy director of the CDC. This is not her first rodeo. She's been with the CDC for over 30 years, managing responses to H1N1, SARS, and Ebola. I've spent a lot of time with her out in the field. I know we've already talked about the movie Contagion. Well, remember Kate Winslet's character, the virus hunter? She was modeled after Dr. Shookit. I asked her if she knows anyone personally who has contracted the coronavirus.
1: No, not yet. But, you know, the epidemiology that we're seeing suggests that all of us are going to know someone.
2: You are the principal deputy director of the CDC. Talk us through a typical day for you now.
1: The typical day doesn't exist. Every day is a new adventure. Um, But, you know, we're taking this really seriously for the past several months. And so my days start early and they go late and they involve many calls after I do get home. We have over 1,500 CDC staff involved in the response. So my day is always interesting and always challenging and involves connecting with people around the country, the states and local public health who are on the front line.
2: You um, have worked on lots of pandemics and outbreaks in the past. Have you ever seen a response of this magnitude, the National Guard now just deployed to New Rochelle, all that we're seeing around the country?
1: The extent of this outbreak in the United States and around the world is is serious. Um, I was in, in Beijing in 2003 during the SARS outbreak, and I, I saw firsthand um, society really stopped. Um, I think we all saw that on TV when we saw Wuhan, China, and then Hubei province literally shut down. I think each community will be making some decisions about what's the best strategy for their environment. CDC is working closely with the state and local public health authorities to provide guidance and advice. I have seen some pretty dramatic interventions in my experience. I actually was also in West Africa during Ebola. Mm -hmm. But I think for Americans, this is quite surprising and stunning in some of the communities.
2: There's been a lot of news about testing, and I want to ask you some specific questions about that. But first, just give me your your take on how has the United States done with regard to testing compared to other countries in the world?
1: The rollout of the laboratory testing to the public health system didn't go as quickly and smoothly as we usually see. We had hoped to be able to scale up the testing at the public health labs at states and cities earlier than we were able to. So that was a bit delayed in most of the country. The commercial sector really was slow to take this on and scale up. And what we saw in a couple other countries was rapid scale up of testing. I would say that the jury's out about exactly what's the best way to uh, roll out testing. I've, I've heard from colleagues in other countries about Concern that there was so much testing going on of people with no symptoms and people who really were not at risk that it clogged up the healthcare system. So I think right now we're seeing, you know, we've done more than 11,000 tests, I believe, between CDC and the state and local public health labs now. And the commercial labs are just coming online right now. So I think it's going to be important to use them. But I don't want the American public to get the impression that the right thing is for every single person who wants a test to get tested. That could have negative consequences, both for the healthcare system and the testing ability for everyone who really needs it.
2: Right now, if somebody is concerned because they have symptoms, they don't seem to have the flu, maybe they came in contact with somebody with the coronavirus, as things stand now, Dr. Shukat, how easy would it be for that person to get tested?
1: Well, I think an important thing is to be connected with the healthcare system to figure out if you need testing. You know, it may not be the best thing to go into a clinic and ask about that. It may be better to call. I would say that based on what I've seen so far and learned about this virus, the average person who's young and healthy without underlying conditions like heart disease, lung disease, kidney disease, or diabetes, who develops cough and fever can probably stay home and um, essentially self isolate until they feel better and um, doesn't really need a test. Over the course of the weeks or months ahead, there may be so many people with these symptoms that testing individual ones may not be as efficient. And we really need to shift into the community interventions and not the one-on-one or the the man-to-man. You know, we need to move to the zone approach.
2: It, It sounds like what you're saying, at some point, there is going to be this acknowledgement that the virus is spreading in the community. And testing every individual, given that you're not going to do anything different based on the result of that testing, may not make as much sense. But we're not there yet, right? I mean, we we still need to get an idea of how widespread this is in the United States, and it seems like we don't really know the answer to that question.
1: Right. Um, There are a couple approaches to get an understanding of how widespread this is. So, you know, we have a number of systems that we use to track uh, seasonal influenza, and those systems are being adapted to also track COVID-19. But another of the systems that we're using is our hospital surveillance that looks at uh, individuals who are hospitalized for infectious respiratory disease who get influenza testing we're adding the covid-19 testing for those individuals. So I think we're going to have the broad perspective of where things are going and how bad this is with some of these systems, you know, so essentially outpatients, inpatients, critical care and also fatalities will all be tracked the way that we track for flu, but we'll be adding in the the COVID testing. And we're just beginning to get those systems rolled out in different areas.
2: One of the questions I get a lot, Dr. Shuchat, I'm sure you do as well, has to do with schools. Uh, We do see that there are school closings in the United States. And and I wonder if you think that's warranted, if that's really going to be of benefit.
1: We know that children are very important in the transmission or spread of many respiratory viruses, But for the COVID-19 disease, we don't know that children are an important part of the transmission dynamics. We haven't seen that yet. That said, school dismissals or school closures may be warranted for certain situations. For instance, a case in a school may appropriately prompt dismissals for cleaning. That's, you know, dismissals for just a day or two so sufficient cleaning of the environment can happen. There may be schools that serve a high-risk population, special needs kids who have many medical problems or have staff or faculty where there's a high percentage of people who are at risk for severe complications. Those types of facilities may need to want to alter their their procedures to be able to protect the vulnerable. Um, Schools may, in the weeks or months ahead, experience high absentee rates, where it's really not feasible to keep the the school open. But we know that closing a school has a lot of unintended consequences. Um, Many times it means parents have to stay home uh, because their kids are home, and those workplaces the parents go to will have uh, unexpected high absenteeism. We know also that uh, a high percentage of American children depend on schools for lunch and for meals. And so, um, what we really want schools to be doing now and communities to be doing is to think through if we do end up needing to close a school for a shorter, long time or needing to dismiss students for a shorter, long time, what can we get ready to go that will help kids be able to learn while they're home, people who need to be fed be, be able to be fed? while the school is closed and, um, you know, making sure there's good communication systems so that the the community knows what to do when the school will reopen
2: and so forth. With uh, spring break next week, this is another question I get a lot. What is the guidance the CDC is giving on travel, leaving aside international countries for a while, would you recommend people not travel this next week during spring break?
1: Well, we think that um, people who are vulnerable, those who are elderly with underlying conditions or those with serious underlying conditions who aren't that elderly, um, should think twice about, about travel. One of the issues is the uncertainty of where you're going and, uh, you know, what the c- circumstances will be where you're going. Um, we also think that large gatherings, you know, these these conferences that bring people mm-hmm. together from all across the country, it's not necessarily that being at a conference itself is that um, dangerous or being at a large event like, you know, one of the festivals. But I think what we're concerned about is that individuals who come from across the country to a large event and then return to, you know, 50 or 100 different cities could bring that virus back into many communities and really speed up how this virus spreads
2: across the country. And a mass gathering is how many people would you say?
1: You know, this is going to be variable. We've posted some recommendations on our website. They're called Community Mitigation Strategies, really what we call social distancing. So there's not an absolute number for a mass gathering. You kind of know it when you see it. But if it's filled with high-risk people or people like on a a cruise ship where there's lots of high-risk people and they're going to be going back to a million places and the shared um, uh, environment is difficult to keep clean those are the kinds of settings that we're concerned about.
2: You know, I've really been struck by the fact that most of the headlines make the point, I think correctly that 80% or so of the people who are infected by this virus will recover and be okay. But we have defined the vulnerable population as you've mentioned, and and I and I wonder for, you know, people who are in their 70s or 80s who are listening right now, people who may have an underlying condition. They hear this Dr. It and for many of them, it feels like a death sentence just waiting to happen. How do you how do you respond to them?
1: Yeah, every individual is different, and there's not a a certain age cutoff or a certain disease that um, puts you at astronomically higher risk than someone else. Um, but there's things that everyone can do: um, higher risk and lower risk. Certainly, reducing the contacts that you have. If you are in one of these high-risk groups, reducing the um, social e- exposures, finding alternative ways to socialize—you know, whether it's by phone or online or video chats with loved ones—making sure that you have, you know, supplies at home, medicines at home. Um, so the most important things are to reduce those exposures and and limit the chances that you'll contract the virus. Now, if you do get the virus, um, most people. Um, will not have the severe outcomes. It's just that the risk for the elderly and those with underlying conditions is higher that you'll have those more complicated courses. Um, One of the reasons we're trying to slow the spread and really strengthen the healthcare system is so that if you do get infected and you do have a a difficult pneumonia or a, a complicated course of the illness, we wanna make sure that the healthcare system can serve you well. One thing that people should know is that there are clinical trials going on right now of new drugs Mm -hmm. that may be promising to reduce the seriousness of the infection. And I I hope that we'll have results of those in the next few months. We've all heard about vaccine studies. Those are going to take much longer. But the therapy trials should have some results in the next few months. And that's the kind of thing that um, would be very helpful to know in the future.
2: And just finally, if you can stare into your crystal ball for a second, it's early March. How long do you think we're going to be talking about this?
1: Well, I think we need to be ready for this to be a problem for some time. Many respiratory viruses have a seasonality, more disease in the winter and spring and less in the summer, um, But uh, you you will recall that with influenza in 2009, when a very new influenza pandemic strain emerged, we had disease during the summer too. It didn't go away completely. We had large outbreaks in summer camps and so forth. That was a virus where school children were really important. And it may have been that the summer break from school reduced the circulation. And as soon as kids went back to school, we saw a big increase again in the fall. I have to say we're preparing for... A response that lasts months, and I think if this virus turns out to be one that sticks with us as a, in terms of humans, you know, until we have high levels of immunity, either because so many people had mild infection and got protected, or because we have a vaccine, we may need to be ready to deal with this virus for years. And I think the systems that have um, let us down or been less robust than we had wanted are going to be critical for us to invest in and to make sure that we do better during this response and that we do even better for the next one.
2: Thanks so much for your time, Dr. Shuchat, and and good luck. Stay healthy, keep the hands washed, and we hope to speak to you again soon. Thanks so much. During this kind of outbreak, it's important to find the right balance between panic and denial. You can only stay calm by sticking to the facts. I know it's not easy, but I hope this conversation helped clarify some of your questions. And remember, you can always go to CNN.com for the most up-to-date information on the coronavirus. We'll be back tomorrow. Thanks for listening.